Well, good morning once again. I am so glad to be able to be sharing God's Word with you this morning. If you've got your Bible with you and it doesn't blow away, you can open up to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, more properly stated. There's one Gospel according to Matthew, according to Luke, according to Mark, according to John, four different accounts of the one good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we have begun to look into the Gospel of Mark, those of you that have been a part of this study, what has been Mark's big idea that he's been trying to get across to us? What's been the main theme that he's been communicating through the stories in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the Gospel according to Mark? Think about that for a moment. Always a good way to read God's Word and meditate on God's Word is to think, what is the main idea? What is God really saying through what he has written? And so, if you remember, I'll help you out, the big idea in the opening chapters of Mark's Gospel, and this really carries a long way through the Gospel, is that Jesus Christ has the authority to teach us. Now, when we're talking about the authority of Jesus Christ, it is demonstrated in his miracles. The miracles of Jesus Christ were not done just to ease suffering, although that is part of the reason. God is compassionate. God cares about our suffering. And Jesus Christ had a compassionate heart and wanted to ease the suffering of everyone he came into contact with. But he didn't come into the world to ease suffering. He came into the world to speak the truth from God, himself being the word of God in the flesh. So that he didn't have to say, thus says the Lord, quoting from what God had said, but he was able to say, truly I say to you. And no prophet ever spoke that way, because Jesus Christ is no mere prophet. He's not just repeating the word of the Lord, but he is the word of the Lord. And when he speaks, he speaks with the authority of God himself. And the miracles that Jesus did, the healings, the casting out of demons, that was to demonstrate that he has the authority, that the visible manifestation of his power was to show that the words that he spoke were in fact the truth from God and that we should listen to him. This is my beloved son, says the voice of the father. Listen to him. So that's what we want to do this morning. We want to listen to God's son, Jesus Christ. Now, when I say that the big idea that Mark has been introducing is the authority of Jesus Christ to teach us, to teach us the truth about God, to teach us the truth about ourselves, to teach us the truth about the kingdom of God, how to enter the kingdom of God, everything that is most important. That authority of Jesus Christ came into conflict with other so-called authorities. That there are many authorities that exist in this world. And that when Jesus Christ came speaking the truth, and that what he said contradicted what other authorities had been saying, well, that's where you get conflict. That's where things can get violent. Because if there's anything that men will defend violently, it is their authority. It is their power. And Jesus Christ was a threat to the authority of those who had worked so hard and had established their perception of authority among the people of the Jews for centuries. Those who were the scribes, those who were the Pharisees, they were held in great esteem by the common people. And when the scribes and Pharisees taught, the people listened to what they had to say. But when Jesus Christ came along with a teaching that was new wine and not fitting in the old wineskins, well then those authorities were threatened 
and they responded very quickly. In fact, as we start into chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning, we'll see that by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 6, the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities, had already decided that Jesus Christ must be destroyed. Let's go ahead and read the opening pericope here in Mark chapter 3. This is the fifth in a series of short stories that reveal to us the growing opposition to the ministry of Jesus Christ. It says this, Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. How to destroy him. As Jesus Christ confronts the Pharisees and the scribes here once again in chapter 3, we find that the issue that they are conflicting on is once again the issue of the Sabbath. This had happened in the previous chapter. All of these stories tie together. And we saw that Jesus Christ, his disciples, had been breaking the traditions of the elders, how they had interpreted the commandment of God to rest on the Sabbath by picking the heads of grain there in Mark chapter 2, verse 24. And now we have an escalation of this Sabbath conflict. And this is going to be one of the main reasons why Jesus Christ is opposed, persecuted, and put to death is because he directly confronted the error of the scribes and the Pharisees on this issue. What is the proper observance of the Sabbath? This was an issue that was at the very heart of Judaism. This was how they identified themselves as God's people. And this is how they measured their faithfulness to God. And the scribes and the Pharisees had spent hundreds of years building up their tradition, building up their authority, teaching people, this is how you're supposed to observe the Sabbath and be faithful to God. And Christ comes along and he acts contrary. He acts different according to what they have taught. And so if they allow this to happen, what is going to happen to their authority? What's going to happen to their perception of authority? They are going to lose the heart of the people. If Jesus Christ continues to gain the heart of the people, he is going to undermine their confidence in these leaders. And so, they must destroy him. You see here the wickedness that is in the heart of mankind. I have underestimated the wickedness of mankind in my life. When I was a younger man, I, I knew history. I knew that mankind was wicked. I could read about the gulag, I could read about the Nazi concentration camps, and I knew what man was capable of. And yet, when I looked around at my country, I thought, it won't happen here. It can't happen here. That we've got so much common grace, we've got so much knowledge of history, we've got so many examples to look at and see, that won't happen again. And the, the great refrain that has been said ever since World War II was, never again. And will mankind be able to keep that resolve? Will mankind be able to 
avoid the error that it has made over and over again throughout its history. Mankind is not interested in the truth. No one is able to counter Jesus Christ's argument. He says to the people, What is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To heal or to kill? To save a life or to take a life? And no one answers him a word. Because sound arguments do not change human hearts. I'm going to say that again. Sound arguments do not change human hearts. Why? Because people are not seeking the truth. What are they seeking? Power, position, influence, honor, money, comfort, health. That's what mankind is pursuing. And they're not pursuing the truth. They are not interested in an honest debate with Jesus Christ about who he is, about the Sabbath observance. They are not interested in his arguments. All they are interested in is conniving, coming up with a way secretly to destroy him. You see how sin twists the heart of people. These people who thought themselves good people, who thought themselves God's people, who thought they devoted their life to the service of the true God, the God of Israel, and how twisted they can become that on the Sabbath day they can find great offense and think that it is a horrible crime to heal a man on the Sabbath. And yet at the same time, they have no problem conspiring together with their political opponents on how to destroy an innocent man. All in the service of God because they are delusional and they don't realize how twisted their hearts have become by their love of honor, their love of pride. John warns us about this. The Apostle John wrote at the end of his life, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in the world is not from the Father. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. These are the things that are passing away. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And so, how about you? Do you have pride in your heart? Do you seek the truth above all else? Are you willing to give up all that you have in this life in order to possess the truth about God and to have a relationship with Him that is real and not pretentious? That's what Jesus Christ came into the world to call us to, to call us to repentance. And whoever loves his life more than Christ is not worthy of him. Whoever does not give up all that he has cannot be the disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you working so hard to gain more in this life? And are you losing your soul? Well, the Pharisees, you see in verse 6, held counsel with the Herodians. And these are not natural allies. But politics makes strange bedfellows. And when you're looking to defend your own position, your own power, your own influence, your own honor, you'll work together with anybody, whether you like them or not, because your God is demanding it. Your idol is demanding it. And Jesus Christ said to his disciples, and hear this, you who are professing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, he told his disciples, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod can enter our hearts. 
It's probably here this morning. Leaven is like a cancer. It spreads everywhere. You can't control it. You have to be very cautious. You have to catch it early. You have to deal with it severely. You don't mess around with cancer. And so you don't mess around with the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? It's the love of power. Religious power, political power. The Pharisees had religious power. The Herodians had political power. That is the sinful leaven in the heart that God warns us about. It spreads like a cancer, this desire to have influence. Everyone wants to be an influencer. We have to have such an influence on our society. We want power. That leaven will destroy your soul. You must root it out. We are those who are not seeking power. We are those who are not seeking influence. We are those who are seeking to do the will of God even though it costs us all of our power, even though it costs us all of our influence. Though I be arrested and put in jail and lose my opportunity to speak publicly, I do the will of God because I'm not seeking power. I'm not seeking influence. I'm just seeking to please the Father, to do His will. That's what a Christian is. Totally different from what's in the world. And until you give up your desire for power, your desire for influence, your desire for control, your light will not shine. And the world will not see Christ in you. Let's go on to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that is recorded for us in verses 22 through 30. Look again in Mark chapter 3, taking a little bit out of order. You see there in verses 22 and 23 that the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He, that's Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan, his house is divided. He cannot stand, but it is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, there it is, truly I say to you, the authority of Jesus Christ to speak as the word of God, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So these scribes from Jerusalem... These are the bigwigs. These aren't the local scribes in Galilee, but they come from the very heart of Judaism, the very center of religious authority and power in that culture. And they are there to make a determination about this so-called prophet, this miracle worker from Nazareth. And as they are informed by their friends, their other Pharisees and scribes who are there in Galilee, that he does not hold to their traditions and that he's teaching things that undermine their authority in the eyes of the people, they have to come up with a reason to discredit him. Now, if the world can destroy your credibility, that works for them. If they can get it so that no one listens to the voice of God, and instead we listen to the voice of man, they're happy with that. But if they can't 
destroy your reputation, then they will just destroy you. And we see that throughout church history. First, attack the reputation. Secondly, if that doesn't work, kill the messenger. And so that is where they are at here very early in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We're here in the first year of Jesus Christ's public ministry, and already he is ministering under the threat of death. And the accusation, the argument that the Pharisees come up with, these scribes come up with, to try to discredit Jesus Christ and ruin his reputation in the community, to try to weigh their own authority, their own respect against what people can see with their own eyes and hear with their own ears, and so people have to make a decision, do I trust what the authorities are telling me, or do I trust what God is saying? They have to come up with some kind of argument. They can't refute Jesus' arguments. His arguments are too good. They're just silent when he gives an argument. They don't answer. All they can do is plot in secret. But Jesus has an answer for their argument. And the argument that they come up with is most wicked. Surely only a drowning man will grasp at straws. And they are drowning. They have no argument. They have no evidence. They have no position from which to launch this attack. And so they just come up with something preposterous. They come up with a a libel that is so wicked that it definitely suits the name that we call Satan, the accuser of the brethren. The accusation they come up with is that he is in fact possessed by the prince of the demons. And so Jesus is able to answer their argument. He calls them to him. He doesn't run from it. He faces it. And he teaches not only them, but also all the people who are hearing this accusation, this slander, this name-calling. And he tells them that it doesn't make any sense. Their argument holds no water. How can Satan be divided against himself? And if Satan is divided against himself, well, then that's the end for Satan. He's given up, and he is done for. Now, this accusation that they make, that he is possessed by Beelzebul, leads to the frightening words, the startling words of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 28 and 29 concerning the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, this eternal sin that will never be forgiven. Now, at this point, I've asked for some of our young people to hand out an information sheet that I gave you years ago when I was preaching on this very passage on a Sunday morning, 2016. And so I'm not going to repeat everything that I taught six years ago. We don't have time for that this morning. But I give you a summary of that teaching here in this handout. And so if you have questions about the unpardonable sin, as it's been called, then here's some good resources, some good quotes, some good study, some good research that you can look at and will help you to answer some of the difficult questions that arise from this rather terrifying passage. See, we as evangelicals, we love to emphasize what Jesus Christ himself utters here, that all sins will be forgiven the children of man. What a wonderful statement of God's grace. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. And yet, there is a but. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. 
Now, as you receive the handout, you'll notice that the title on the top of the page says, The Unforgivable Sin, because that's what this is normally referred to as. But I would like you to take note that Jesus does not actually use that term, unforgivable. Unforgivable gives the idea that it can't be forgiven. But I would like you to take note that Jesus never uses that kind of terminology in any of the parallel accounts or this one. Jesus never says God cannot forgive this sin, but he says God will not forgive this sin. Now, just because he doesn't say cannot doesn't mean that that's not true, but we can't assert that that is what Jesus is saying because that's not what he says. And I would propose to you, as you think about what has been called the unforgivable sin, that it's not really an unforgivable sin because God can do anything. God can forgive it if he wants to. But it will not be forgiven because God doesn't want to forgive this sin. There is a sin that God doesn't want to forgive. And this is it. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Why? Why this sin? What is so terrible about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that God would choose to never forgive this sin? Well, I meditated and thought about this for years, and I hope that I'm approaching some understanding of it. Notice that terminology. I hope that I'm approaching some understanding of it, because there's depth here that I don't think any theologian has yet fully understood. But what I would propose to you to think about, to hopefully put you on the right path, to understand why this sin is the most heinous of sins, is this. The most personal ministry of God to us is in the ministrations of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God in the world today. You've never seen the Father. The Father dwells in unapproachable light. You weren't there when Jesus Christ was upon the earth. You have not seen Jesus Christ. But what contact do you have with God? More important than seeing God in the flesh with your eyes, more important than being there during the days of His incarnation is to have personal ministry of the Holy Spirit to your heart. The Spirit of God is the one who comes to the soul of man and who reveals truth. He is the bringer of light. He is the one who is the personal minister of God in our lives. And so to blaspheme the Holy Spirit in this way that these religious leaders are doing is the greatest insult to God. It's the most personal affront to God. When God comes in humility, when God comes in grace, when he offers his son, but not only that, but the Spirit of God himself comes to the heart of those who are seeing and beholding the works of Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit of God is convicting them of sin, and revealing the truth to them, and ministering to the soul, and then they say that that is the spirit of the devil, that that is the spirit of the evil one. God takes that very personally. There's a line that you don't want to cross in your blasphemies against God. There's a line that the human soul can go across where there is no coming back, because God will not grant repentance to anyone who does this. And so, those who would blaspheme Jesus Christ 
I say take caution. Take care. But be even more careful that you do not blaspheme the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is in the world today. And the Holy Spirit is ministering personally to souls today. And so I believe that this sin can still be committed today. If you have ever feared that you have committed the unpardonable sin, I tell you that you have probably not. Because the soul that has committed this sin does not fear that they have committed this sin. The soul that commits this sin is so far lost and so far gone that it would never ask God for forgiveness. And so God would never deny someone who asks for forgiveness, forgiveness. All who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. If you fear that you have committed this sin, well then there's one way to know that you have not. And that is to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For if you do so, then God has granted you repentance and you are not guilty of the eternal sin. Let us look at verses 7 through 12. Back up again. From his conflict with the religious authorities to his ministry to the people. How contemporary this is. How relevant this is to the time that we live in. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And the authorities will always be persecuting the people of God. But the common people will hold the people of God in respect and recognize them as those who are holy, those who are sincere, those who are righteous, those who are loving. An elder must be a man who has the respect of those in his community. Because the common people in the community can see a person's character. But the authorities will always be opposing God's people. You see here, Jesus withdraws from the synagogue where the opposition was intensifying and solidifying, where those who were the rulers and leaders of the religious authority were plotting to destroy him. So Jesus withdraws with his disciples in verse 7 to the sea. And a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had disease pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. While positions of power, positions of influence, positions of authority are corrupt and wicked, yet the common people are looking for sincerity. They're looking for truth. They're looking for reality. And here the crowds are coming to Jesus from all over. And yet these crowds are a threat and a danger because they are described in verse 9 as those who might crush him because of their intense desire to be healed of all of their diseases. And so there's a little boat, not one of the big fishing boats we talked about weeks ago, but just a, a little boat that Jesus has his disciples have ready there. So if the crowds start to crowd him too much, and he's in danger of being trampled and crushed, he can get onto the boat and teach them from the boat, which he does in chapter 4, verse 1. And then you've got the twelve apostles in verses 13 through 19. Read those along with me as I read them out loud. Follow along in your Bibles. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve 
whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, what I want you to notice about this brief account of Jesus' call of the twelve disciples is that Jesus chose his men. They did not choose him, but he chose them. And this was the opposite of what was normally done for rabbis in this time. Like our schools, our educational institutions, people choose the school they're going to go to, and then they're accepted by that school, usually. But here, these men did not apply to the school of Jesus, but he went out and chose those who were going to be his disciples. And Jesus Christ made a strong point of this when he told his disciples in the Gospel of John, remember, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, the other thing I want you to notice here in this selection of the apostles, the twelve, is that he chose them, notice what it says, for what purpose, in verse 14, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. You must spend time with Jesus before you are going to be qualified to minister for Jesus. The only way that you can be useful to the Lord Jesus Christ is by being with him. That is the same today as it was then. In the names of the twelve here, there's a certain glory for God because most of these men that he has selected, that he has chosen, that are named for us in the Gospels, we know almost nothing about. Yes, Peter factors importantly in the Gospel accounts, and James and John are part of that inner circle, and we read about James's martyrdom, and we recognize John and his writings in the New Testament. But you go through the rest of the list, and what did Andrew do? We don't know. Yeah, there's some church traditions, there's some history, but what does the Bible say? There's not much about Philip or Bartholomew. All we really know about Matthew is how he was called, and he was a tax collector. Thomas, we have one or two statements from. We know nothing about James, the son of Alphaeus, except that he's the son of Alphaeus. We don't know much about Thaddeus. We think that that's another name for Nathaniel. Simon was a zealot. And then you have Judas. And what does this list of names show us? What do we learn from this fact that God gives us 12 apostles whose names are on the very foundation stones of the New Jerusalem who will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in the coming kingdom and yet they're nobodies. They come from nowhere and there's no record of what they did. Well, this tells us the same thing that we learned as we were studying through Romans chapter 16. That it's not superstars that God uses to further his work in the world. It's you. There's no room in God's work for the superstar. For that would eclipse the glory of Jesus Christ, and God wants nothing to eclipse the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants nobodies. He wants nothings. He wants you that nobody would remember, nobody writes about, you don't enter into the history books, you are the ones who carry on the work of the kingdom. 
these unknown men were the foundation of the church. They were the start of it all. We all owe our faith to them. Without their work, none of us would be here as Christians. And yet, they're nobodies. And that's the way it's always been. That story I told you earlier about the prisoner in Russia, I don't know his name. His name's not important. What was he before? Doesn't matter. The glory is from God. And it's not of us. And our glory is just a hindrance. Never rely on an arm of the flesh. Never rely on a superstar. Don't call a celebrity to come and preach the gospel. God has no use for them. God has use for you. It's a simple person talking to another simple person. That's how the gospel grows. That's how the gospel spreads. That's how Christ builds his kingdom. Never forget that. The 12 starts with one who denied Christ and ends with one who betrayed him. And in between, a bunch of nobodies. That's who he selected. That's who he chose. Now, the last thing here in chapter 3 that I want us to notice is Jesus' family. They are introduced in verses 20 and 21, where it says, Jesus went home, the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. His family thinks he's out of his mind. The Pharisees say that he is possessed of a demon. And Mark puts these two accounts together. He actually inserts the account of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit right after he talks about the family thinking he's out of his mind and then picks it up again immediately after because Mark is connecting this. The ones who should have recognized Jesus Christ, his own brothers, did not believe in him at this point. The Gospel of John tells us that his brothers very early in his ministry were telling him that he needed to go up to Jerusalem. Get out of Galilee. Go preach in Jerusalem if you're this big stuff, if you're God's prophet, if you're God's messenger. Go preach in Jerusalem. That's where you should go because they weren't believing in him. And here are those brothers who aren't believing in him. They think he's gone insane. The ones who should have recognized him, the ones who were experts in the law, who had devoted their lives to serving God and teaching the Bible, they should have recognized Jesus Christ. They did not. And so this teaches us, there is no insider. There is no inside track. But the last will be first and the first will be last. And that those who you would expect to come to Christ are very often those who will wind up in hell. And that those who you would least expect to come to Christ are those who will be eating and drinking in the kingdom of God. Many Christian young people who grow up in churches like this will be weeping and gnashing their teeth in the lake of fire. Because they thought they had the inside track. They thought that because they'd heard the gospel from an early age, that they were in. And many of those who hated Jesus Christ and loved their sin and sold themselves out to do evil, they will be eating and drinking with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God because he came to call sinners. Those who you would most expect to follow him are often those who fall away. They think that he's a blasphemer. They think that he's gone crazy. Pick up the story at verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? 
And if they thought he was crazy, well, then they probably think so more now. He doesn't even know who his mother and brothers are. This guy needs an intervention. And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Physical proximity to Jesus Christ is nothing. If Jesus Christ is your countryman, that doesn't do you any good. If you grew up in the same household as Jesus Christ, ate at his table, worked together with him in your father's workshop, it means nothing. Physical proximity to Jesus Christ is worthless. You can go over to Jerusalem and you can go to all the holy sites. It won't bring any grace to your soul. Those who are close to Jesus Christ are those who hear the word of God and do it. I like what one commentator said about this. He said, Those who assume they are close to Jesus should think again. And those who think they are far from him should take hope. There was another occasion where Jesus was teaching and a woman in the crowd cried out, Blessed is the womb who bore you. And Jesus Christ answered and said, No, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, said Jesus, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And the command of God comes to all of us here comes to all the world. The same message that Jesus Christ preached today, he is preaching in the world today because Jesus Christ is here. He is in me. His Spirit is here. And the Word of God is speaking. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's a command. Repent and believe is a command. You must do the command. Unless you repent, unless you believe in the gospel of the kingdom, you will perish in your sins. You want to be the brother of Jesus Christ? You want to be his sister? You want to be welcomed at his table, into his father's house? Then do the will of God. Hear what he says and obey it with the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is what we preach. It's what Paul preached. It's what Jesus preached. It's what the apostles preached. This is no easy believism. You can be baptized, you can say you believe, you can pray the sinner's prayer, but if you don't repent, and if you don't believe, you will not be saved. We are not saved by a profession of faith, brothers and sisters. We are saved by faith. You can profess faith all day long, but until you believe, you are still in your sins. This is a revival message. We need revival. And we need to take this message out. You're not Billy Graham. You're not preaching to thousands. God wants to use you. Do you believe this? Then speak it. Paul said, I believe, therefore I speak. It wasn't Paul's natural abilities. It wasn't his personality that made him an effective tool. It was the fact that he believed. And if you believe then Jesus Christ will make you a fisher of men. Let's pray. Lord God, how our hearts are so in tune with the confession of the man who came and asked for healing for his child.
And Jesus Christ told him that all things are possible to him who believes. And the honest cry of his heart was, I do believe. Help my unbelief. And so, Lord God, right now, I come to you and all those who hear your voice come to you in that same spirit. And we say, Lord God, we do believe. But we need you to help our unbelief. We have not yet believed with a whole heart. We have not yet believed with a strong faith that is able to make us like Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. However far we have attained, whatever strength of faith we have, Lord, we want more. We need more. The only thing in our life that is important is that we get more. For your salvation is by faith from start to finish. And so, Lord God, we don't want to be those who just profess faith, who know all the right answers and can say what is true. But, Lord God, what's in our hearts? What do we believe? You see, you know what a man is. You know what we believe and what we don't believe and what is just an empty profession. Reveal it to us so that we can repent of our unbelief, grow strong in faith as we seek it with our whole heart. Amen.